The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. We say to reach out if there is somebody that we should be talking to. Mm -hmm. And our friend Lisa had said, you need to talk to Alicia because she is probably the most incredible person in the world. Yes. It's a true story. It is a true story. So I'm excited for today. And, and we're going to dive into probably some topics that we we tried to talk to uh, people about a number of different topics. And I think mm-hmm. this is one that we've touched on, but maybe not necessarily have we dove into. Yeah. And so it'll it'll be a learning experience for us. Um, she is a doctor with a, uh, Alicia. I don't even know what some of them mean. I don't know what DOM is or a DIP <laughs> or a PEC or an MB or a CHB. Doctor works for me because I kind of get that one. And Alicia Rye, how are you? I'm good. And you know what? Doctor works for me as well. (laughs) You've earned all those other things. Should they not be set like in a business card? Would you not have all those things on there? I I don't. Um, I think. (laughs) Um, No, I don't. I don't have it on there. Um, I think, um, yes, I have earned all of those uh, degrees and diplomas and, and the, and, you know, the important thing I think I've learned from all of that is when I look at all of those qualifications, um, I don't necessarily see the qualifications, but I see the lessons that I've taken from each one of them Mm. and the the determination and the grit that it has brought about um, in my life. Um, And I think where it's brought me to, to today as a person. Yeah. I, I think life lessons are a big thing and, and yeah. every day is a learning experience, mm-hmm. uh, but that has to start from somewhere. And so Holly and I always like to ask the skill testing question, and that is, who are you and where did you come from? Ooh, that's a big question. So I'm Alicia Rai. I am an infertility warrior, a NICU mama, and a disability advocate. And I am from South Africa. Amazing. I love how you describe yourself. It's, you know, a warrior, you know, somebody who's championing some causes. And as we've said before here on Miami Project, that doesn't usually happen just because it was a neat thing to do on a Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it's because of things that have happened in your life. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this journey and, and how did you get to this point today? Uh, when you were younger, what was the goal? Was it to be a doctor or was it something completely different and then life just took you into this direction? I think when I was 16 years old, I actually wanted to be a dentist. Um, and so that was a goal. You know, I wanted to do something medical. I wanted to be in a profession where I helped people. Um, and I got a bursary, well, back in South Africa, a scholarship um, to study medicine. And so that was something completely different. I was like, oh, well, I can I can commit to four years. I don't know about six years. Of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I had parents that were really excited that I got this bursary. And uh, I always say I'm, I'm, a, I'm the middle child, so I'm the very pleasing child. And mm. so when I saw my parents really excited about me getting accepted into medicine, I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm doing medicine now. <laughs> 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 and so I kind of went with it. Um, but I think I always say that I think, and I know that God always had a plan for my life, even before I knew him. Mm. Um, and so I only gave my life to Christ when I was 19 years old in my first year of university. So even before that, he had his hand over my life and my story. And he was already weaving that, 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 that beautiful tapestry as he does. And, um, so, yeah, so the goal was always to 
to to to be in the medical field and I think once I got in there and I really felt that this is what I was passionate about I really went with it and um, yeah that's how I got into medicine. What was it at 19 that brought on this faith? Really struggles. So I grew up in a country that was South Africa in a post-apartheid South Africa. So um, I was the first woman of color accepted into the program to study medicine. Oh, wow. So, um, and we were three, we were three people of color, um, and I was the only female. And so I was in a residence that was predominantly, well, actually only white people. And so the fact that I wasn't wanted there was very known. Mm. Wow. was made really known to me that I was not wanted there. And so that was really difficult because for the first time I was really challenged in in really standing up for who I am. And um it brought a lot a lot of questions on who am I? Why am I here? Mm. And why am I doing this? Do I really want to do medicine this way if it means having to be confronted with the color of my skin every single day? It was one evening I um, felt as if maybe this is not worth it. I know I have a bottle of pills upstairs in my, in my, in my room and maybe this is a way out. So I was walking upstairs and there was another, um, student or friend at the time and she said hey do you want to come to my room and have a cup of tea and so I said okay sure let's go have a cup of tea and while we were in the room I was explaining and she was a a white woman and um, she she knew the Lord and she I was explaining just where I was and she said to me do you know Jesus yes I I know about Jesus I, I grew up Catholic um and she said no but do you have a relationship with him and I said, no, I don't. And she said, would you like to have one? And I think I was, you know, when you're rock bottom, um, which I really was at, I said, yes, I want to know him. And I took her hand and we prayed and I went to bed. Um, the thought of, 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 of any suicidal thoughts had immediately left. And I got up the next morning and I just, I felt as if I saw things differently. The sky was blue and the sun really shone. And I felt like I had this fire within me. So I went down to her and I said, oh, my goodness, you've got to tell me more. Why do I feel like I've got this fire in me? And she said, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. And I was like, okay. And I got a Bible and I was just completely, I want to say, use the word infatuated. I couldn't get enough. Mm. And that's where my journey with the Lord started and my love and my understanding of who he is and his love for me and the plan and the purpose that he had for my life. And that's been my my anchor. And I always say my the best decision I made in my life. I always joke and I say, there's two big decisions you've got to make in your life. One is is to commit your life to Christ, and the second most important is who you marry. And <laughs> so, I think I I think I made those two those two decisions the right way. So I um I feel like I'm really blessed. Immaterial of the struggles that that I face, I feel with these two relationships in my life, 
I can face anything. Mm. It's interesting too, based on how you were raised. I mean, often people will think um, when you go into university or college, that first year is kind of that wild year. And yet mm. that first year for you was a a wild year, but just in a completely different way. It was all about oh. Jesus. How did that uh, shape the rest of your schooling? It definitely gave me more purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely felt more than just being thrust into, okay, well, I, I didn't just get a bursary and that's why I'm studying medicine. I really felt like this was God's hand over my life. And that if there was any obstacles that I faced, it was with a different perspective now mm-hmm. that I looked at it, that I knew I can trust you and I know that you've got me. Yeah. And so that's how I was actually able to get through those six years. Cause of course the challenges of, of being a woman of color in that, in that hostel didn't change, oh. but it, it, I realized that my value is not in my skin color. My value is in the fact that I am a daughter of the most high God. Yes. Amen. I can totally relate to that. It's easy to get caught up in, oh, I don't actually look like I fit in. And I've not had to live in South Africa in apartheid mm-hmm. or post-apartheid. But even here, it's it's a struggle when you know that you are physically, visibly different. It can yeah. be another layer of challenge. Yeah. But, you know, and, and I think that was just already the start of, 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 of my journey with just never fitting in. And I've just never fitted in no matter where I've gone. Mm. I could be in a room at a conference and I look around and I'm like, Oh, I'm the only woman of color here or, um, simple things that my, my husband is not Indian. And so even being in a, in a mixed race a relationship, that is also something that I feel like God was just priming me for that. And, um, my, my son, uh, he is, uh, um, adopted. I carried him, but he's adopted and he's, he's white. And so I feel like God just breaks down that barrier of that. He does not see color, but it is the love that is the most important thing. Yeah. When you go through medical school, is there a point in time where you have to figure out, I'm going to be an ER doctor or I'm going to, how did you decide as to which specific field you wanted to be in? Um, I think for me, it was just really um, coming to the point of realizing what I'm passionate about. And I love the emergency medicine aspect of it. And in South Africa, all doctors, when they qualify, are qualified as family physicians. So it's very different Mm -hmm. from the system here in Canada. And so I kind of just spent a lot of time in the emergency room because I had got my, my, my scholarship through the military. I, um, worked with the, the, the South African Navy divers. And so that's where my exposure came in with diving and hyperbaric medicine as well. Mm. Um, and, and so I realized like this is what I'm passionate about. And again, you know, you just follow the, the, the big and small nudges along the way. And when you have peace in your heart, you kind of go with it. Right. Sorry, you worked with the Navy too? <laughs> I'll just see myself out. <laughs> I just put my pants on today. Yeah, so we would do um, sort of search and rescue. Um, and if there was anybody who got decompression sickness while they, or, or got injured while they were diving, I would be the doctor on call for that. Yeah. Okay, amazing. I'm really good at sinking. Is that like, <laughs> is that a thing? <laughs> That's not a thing. Oh man, yeah. I work on it. But I do know a good doctor, Holly. Perfect, thank oh, you. 
<laughs> so when did you then make the move from South Africa to Canada? In 2015. So it was it was really a, a combination of, uh, you know, a lot of different experiences. I realized that as much as I loved emergency medicine, that it wasn't really a lifestyle that would fit in being married at the time. Um, my husband and I were married for about two years at the time, and it wasn't something that I could do. And I really wanted to be a mom and, mm. um, and Canada would probably send me about two or three emails every week saying, come to Canada. And so it was really enticing just having that work life balance. I had a lot of um, friends that were already in Canada and that, you know, just spoke about, you know, the amazing experience they had here. And so I thought, well, I'm up for a challenge, you know, let's, uh, let's go, let's, let's do this and let's see what, what comes off it. You know, if we like it, we stay. And if we don't, we, we go back. And when we came in, um, we enjoyed it and we were just, it just felt like home. And again, you know, it was just the prompting of the Holy spirit when you just feel like, okay, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm open to where you want me to be and where you lead and let's do it. You know, everything's a learning experience. So you're newly married, you're new to Canada was it hard to adjust to being here in Canada from South Africa? Of course, you know, I mean, it's, it's being South African. Um, it's everything that you know, right? Yeah. It's, when you immigrate to a new country, it's literally restarting everything again mm-hmm. and learning a whole new system. My husband and I, we often joke, it took us like about half an hour just to buy bread and milk in the store. Cause we're like, what is going on? There's so <laughs> many options here. Like, I don't even know what, yeah. to, what to choose. And like, you know, so we, it, it was a steep learning curve, but um, like I said, you know, just doing it with my husband was, it made all the difference in the world, just having him with me. Um, Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, it's, it's something that we often talk about, like, Hey, do you ever think we would go back? And, and to be honest, there's times, especially once my son was born, where I thought maybe we should go back to South Africa and be near family. Cause it's just my husband and I here. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be honest, I think we know that this is home for us. This is where we need to be. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that your husband, uh, you guys are a mixed race couple, Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been very fascinated by by that. How did you guys meet, and were there challenges just getting to the altar? Um, so I met my husband when I was thirty years old, and so at that time, culturally, as an Indian woman, that was really old. Mm. But um, you know, for me, it was really important that I married a man that shared the same values that I did more yeah. than anything. And, and I, I remember just praying a lot about my husband and of course wanting to get married and, and saying like, God, I'm going to trust you to bring the right person at the right time, um, to me. And in that year, in 2011, I read the book, uh, Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. Mm. Okay. And yeah, I was, I read the book three times and <laughs> I was just like, Lord, I'm going to trust you for my Michael. I want that kind of man. I want that kind of love. And I'm happy to be on my own if it's not going to be that kind of love and that sort of relationship. And 
I met my husband in a very Hallmark movie kind of way. Uh, my a best friend of mine from high school, she knew him while they were studying at university and she came to visit in Cape Town. They were going to get a hop on, hop off bus in town and they were both running to catch this bus and she ran into a glass door and broke her nose. Oh no. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and she calls me, her doctor friend, and says, look, I need some help. Um, I'm going to send my friend downstairs because I'm lying in the hotel room just trying to stop the bleeding. And I'll send my friend downstairs to, you know, come and take you up to the room. And of course, the friend was my husband. Yeah. So I walk into this hotel and he's at this revolving door. He holds the door open for me. And my first thought was like, oh, hello. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> was my first thought because I'm like, wow, he's so handsome. Uh-huh. And... And then I had to be like, no, no, Alicia, like focus on your friend. Yeah. And in the crazy part, uh, I had already signed a contract to work on a cruise liner and, huh. and I was leaving in two months time. So I knew I, was, I wasn't going to be in a country. So I was like, you can't start a relationship. Like, oh, you can't even be interested in this guy. You've got yeah. things to do. You know, you've got places to go, lady. Like, just stop. And so my husband and I just, um, we chatted in the waiting room while she was being seen by this doctor. And I thought, this is a really nice guy. But again, I was just like, nope, can't go there. You're leaving in two months time. This is not wise. And my husband, he really pursued me. Uh, he mm. was just, uh, let's just go for a cup of coffee. And I said, listen, I'm leaving in two months time. I'm going to work on a cruise liner until I get to Canada. My paperwork is in. And he was like, that's fine. I just want to get to know you. And, and so we got to know each other in, in person for two months mm-hmm. before I left. Uh, but at the end of, I would say within about like four to six weeks, he came to visit. I was not feeling well. He came to my apartment and he brought in some groceries and he did some shopping for me. He walked in and I thought to myself, no one has ever done this for me. Uh Um, And while I was standing in the dining room, I felt as if the Lord was just saying to me, this is your Michael. And I was like, okay. And I still fought it a little because I was like, but this is not going to work. Like I'm leaving. I've got plans to go to Canada. And so we had a long distance relationship for six months. And when I got back from the cruise liner, he asked me to marry him. And I said, yes. Wow. And he was quite bold. He went to visit my parents on his own, visit really? my parents on his own. And the second time he visited my parents, he's like, look, I, I love your daughter and I want to marry her. And my dad's like, I just met you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we, we had a very whirlwind, uh, like courtship. And, uh, yeah. And in July, we celebrate 10 years of marriage. Very oh, sweet. amazing. I love that. I imagine him hopping on like a rowboat chasing the cruise liner. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. Hey, anyway, he, uh, he obviously he has his own way of telling the story. He just said he knew everything in his, in his gut was like, I got to chase this woman because if I let her go, um, it, you know, my life is not going to be the same. I need to be with this woman. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. I'm waiting yeah. for the Hallmark movie for this. Yeah, yes. <laughs> So we we talk about this this hallmark relationship and you guys are married. You'd you'd mentioned that you wanted to be a mom, mm-hmm. and one of the things that you had said at the very beginning was that you are an infertility warrior. Mm-hmm. What does you having to be a mom and being an infertility warrior have to do with one another? 
That was my journey. In hindsight, that was my journey. So, you know, I we were married. We were planning. I, I was on the cruise liner. My husband would come and go and visit from the cruise liner. We were coming to Canada. It was a really stressful time. And so part of me thought, well, I'm not doing anything not to get pregnant, but I'm not getting pregnant. Hmm. But I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of, you know, stress right now. And you know what? It's... Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust your timing in this. And, you know, you've never let me down before. And I'm just going to trust you. And it just kind of went on. I did a few consults back in South Africa and kind of got reassurance from the doctor that everything was fine. Just keep going. Like, you know, it's just a matter of time. Um, finally got pregnant in 2016 when we got to Canada and I thought, oh, wow. Okay. So it was just, you know, uh, stress and I'm now in Canada and we were so excited. We were celebrating our wedding anniversary. I said to my husband, we're going to be, you know, you're going to be a dad. And, um, we bought a home. I chose a room that my, my, my baby's room. And about two weeks later, I miscarried. And that really was the start of a really, really painful journey. Um, we had a total of three miscarriages and it was five years of fertility treatment. Wow. And so that journey on its own really gets you asking the question, why me? Why us? I, you know, many times I would say like, Lord, I don't even see the purpose in all of this. I, I love my husband. I, I know I can really, um, I, I'll be a good mom. I know for sure he's going to be an amazing dad. And I know that I can provide for this child to the best that I can. And I sometimes would look around, which is not comparison is the worst. When you look around and you see other people with kids and you're like, wow, they get kids Mm. and I don't. And so that was really, really painful. Yeah. There's a lot of people who also go through that same situation. And it's one of those things too, where it's the why me's and why can't I have a children and, Uh, children are a blessing. Why don't you want to bless me, God? And then the stigma that is still sometimes attached to not being able to have children. Yeah. And the, you know, the isolation and the shame and um, that's real. And you think to yourself, like, you know, what have I done wrong that this has now happened? And so, you know, there's a lot of guilt associated with the diagnosis as well. Um, but the funny thing in, in all of that, after every miscarriage, after every month, cause every month you're like, okay, you're hopeful. This yeah. is the month that we're going to pick ourselves up. This is a month. We're going to keep going. And then it's not the month. And then months become years. And I would be the resounding feeling that I got every time I prayed about it was, do you trust me? Hmm. Do you trust me? And I would be, of course, I trust you, but this is, this is hard. Yeah. What do you say to 
a woman who's maybe going through that right now, somebody who may or may not have a faith. I say the most important thing, if you don't have faith, is to find your village, other people who can support you through it. Um, people who will just hold space for you and listen to you and not necessarily try to solve it or give you advice, but just hold space for you. Do you feel like giving up? Do you feel like, you know, I'm tired of doing this and is you giving up then giving up on God? Oh, for sure. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to give up many times. I would be say to my husband, okay, that's it. Right. We're done. We are just going to be the two of us. And that is it. Uh, I don't want to do this anymore. It's really taxing on my body to keep doing the fertility treatments. It's really taxing mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually as well. You get to a point where you just like, Lord, I don't, I don't get this. I, I don't see the plan. I don't see the purpose in any of this. And I'm having a really hard time trusting you right now. And so I think those are probably the most honest conversations I've actually had with God where I could really be honest with him and say, I, I really, I, I really don't see how this is going to work out for my good. Yeah. So we know the the story now. How did it transition from the fertility treatments to then you having a son? So we eventually got to a point with our physicians where it was like, well, do we actually pursue another fertility treatment? I was exhausted and I just felt as if, you know, there has to be another way, you know, that we could build our family and, you know, Right from the beginning, when my husband and I, you know, were dating, we spoke about adoption mm-hmm. and, and that was always part of our plan. There was always something on our hearts that we would adopt. And, but you know, you think, okay, we'll have biological children and then we'll adopt. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so my husband was, he, he just, he always said to me, uh, after every fail cycle, he would say, I don't know what our family is going to look like, but I know we're going to have one. Because love makes a family. Hmm. And that. I hung on to that. I hung on to that after every cycle. And I would get mad with him. I'm like, I don't know how you see this because yeah. this is not happening. Like one plus one needs to equal two. And we're not getting that, you know. Um, and so we thought, okay, well, let's look at adoption. Let's look at traditional adoption and see where that takes us, you know. And so we spoke to a few adoption agencies and essentially would be a long wait, another four to seven years of waiting. And again, wow. no, no guarantee that we would actually have a baby. Yeah. And I, I really wanted a baby. Um, and the one day I was um, just on social media and I came across this page and it said uh, embryo, embryo donations, embryo adoptions. And it, it it really struck a chord. I was like, oh, what's this? And I started reading into it. And I eventually went to my husband and I said, hey, this is what it is. So it's couples who have gone through infertility that have embryos left over from their cycles that they don't want to discard and they don't want to donate to science. And they want to essentially gift to other couples uh, who are going through infertility. And mm. so my husband's like, I love this. And he's like, he's, he said, I don't need DNA to be a dad. 
I, I just want to be a dad. And, and so I posted our story on Facebook and the very next morning I get a message from a woman in Seattle and she's like, I read your story and I, you know, do you want to have a chat? And so we got chatting and they such amazing, incredible people. And at the end of the conversation, she's like, well, we want to give you the two embryos uh, that we have left over from our cycle. Mm. And yeah. And so we, we were absolutely amazed that somebody would, would, would bless us with such an incredible gift. And so we got back onto the bandwagon of, of uh, repeating fertility treatments, but now I had new, like new energy. I'm like, this is it. Yeah. Right? Like this is it. And um, so we transferred my, uh, the one embryo, which is my son. And uh, here he is today. Amazing. I didn't even know that existed. Uh, all on social media. Right? All on social media. I, I always say that social media has been my village of perfect strangers supporting me through the trenches, through mm. infertility, through NICU, through, through everything that we're faced is just been women that I've connected with, um, that have just really supported and carried me in a way that has been nothing short of incredible. So you say that you were a part of, uh, the uh, Nick community as well online. Yeah. So clearly things didn't go as smoothly as you had anticipated. No. So I had a really, it was got pregnant, was the middle of the pandemic, of course. Uh, yep. And I, I always look back at that time and everyone was so stressed and so worried. And I was probably the happiest I've ever been. <laughs> <laughs> I was pregnant. I was getting no. rounded by the day and I loved it. Mm -hmm. And I was I, I remember the one day, a really distinct moment was my husband and I lying on the couch, watching TV, just like hand on my belly. And in that moment, absolute gratitude, because I was getting everything that my heart ever desired. Hmm. I had my amazing husband and I was, I was going to have a baby. And I was smooth pregnancy until it wasn't smooth anymore. Um, I was 31, 31, 30 weeks and I woke up a morning with a lot of pain and some bleeding, went into the doctor. They said, everything seems to be doing okay. Let's just get you on bed rest. One week later, I had more bleeding, more pain, and my son was to be delivered. Um, the delivery was not the way we anticipated it to go um mm. the plan was always for me to have a, a c-section for this really precious baby that we wanted nothing to go wrong with because we waited such a long time for him sure. yeah but i was in a hospital with a new obstetrician and she was just like oh don't worry about it this baby is gonna fly out of you you're 31 weeks it's gonna go quick and it did not I pushed for three and a half hours and at the end of it, I had to go for an emergency C-section, but he was so deep now in my pelvis that it was difficult to extract him. And so he had severe head trauma and I remember lying on that operating table with um, empty arms and an empty belly and thinking to myself, like, 
this was not the way it was supposed to be. Mm. Like, Lord, where are you? Mm. Were you angry at the doctors? I mean, you have a medical background. So angry. Yeah. So, so angry. Yeah. So angry for not... For not for her not listening to me, for her not seeing my journey, for not her not acknowledging how precious this child was to us. Yeah. And so that's been a journey to have to work through that anger and that disappointment that I had in her. I was actually able to have a conversation with her. And, you know, you know, a lot of people, the new jerk reaction is like, you should sue her. You yeah. know? <laughs> it doesn't solve anything, though. Yeah. And that, that was exactly my husband's point. He said, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. And, you know, it would cost a lot of money to do that and a lot of energy. And we felt as if we would rather redirect our resources into our son. Mm. And so for two days, we waited. We waited to see if he would survive because I remember the neonatologist coming to us and saying, look, the head trauma was so severe. It comes with a 95% mortality rate, which means only a 5% chance that he'll survive. Oh. So as a physician, I understand her words. Yeah. Uh, I don't accept them. Mm-hmm. I, I, I remember distinctly feeling as if I had like ringing in my ears and I just kind of blocked it all out and Going to my son's NICU, uh, isolate and just lean, kneeling down there and praying and just being like, Lord, you gave him to us. And I don't believe that you, you, you're going to take him away from us now. But if, if this is what your will is, then, then so be it. But if you save him, I promise to give him back to you. And and on the third day, I was able to hold my son. And uh, it wasn't the way I expected it to be. Uh, but he was around and he pulled through. And we then entered a watch and wait. Let's watch and wait and see how Aiden does. And... A lot of the times the, the doctor spoke of his prognosis with emphasis on worst case outcome. So we knew that the brain trauma and the stroke that he had was really extensive. And so the quality of his life was in question, whether he would walk or talk or eat or whether he would even interact with us was still uncertain. And, uh, and so that was a really, really hopeless and dark time in our lives. And it, it was compounded by COVID because our support structures were oh, taken away. And yeah. so literally our, my support structure was my husband. And, uh, and so we really had to dig deep. And so my husband, my, my son was in the NICU for two months and, we brought him home after the two months and uh, we just kind of, I remember my husband saying he can't look too far ahead. He needs to only look to what needs to happen today. And he would say, Aiden needs milk and love. And I can give him that. 
And that's how my husband functioned. He was just like, this is what he needs and this is what we can give him. And that's what we're going to do. Yeah. And I think that really carried us a long way in that we tried not to think too far ahead. And then fast forward, when we got my son's diagnosis, I sort of at four months of age, he was high risk for cerebral palsy uh, because of the brain trauma uh and the stroke and so we knew to look out for it of course my doctor mind every every minute i was just like what did he do did he you know like all of the things and uh we started noticing that he would reach for items with his left hand instead of his right and then i knew that uh gosh you know we we got to get help. So I reached out to the physicians and they were like, yeah, sure, we'll get him from physiotherapy. It was still COVID. So we got one Zoom session every four weeks. That's it? That was it. And so essentially it would mean my husband holding the laptop, the physiotherapist showing me on a doll what I was supposed to do. And I'm trying to hold my baby who's screaming his head off because he doesn't want to do these things. Yeah. And I'm trying to see what she's doing. I'm trying to see what the doll's doing. I'm screaming at my husband because he's not holding the laptop the right way. He's shouting at me because I'm not doing. <laughs> oh my goodness. I remember going into the shower, putting on the water and just having the loudest cry and screaming session. And I'm like, Lord, where are you? We need help. And I got onto social media and I reached out to other moms and I was like, okay, I can't be the only one going through this. How do we get help? We eventually came across a clinic that was in Ontario. And I said to my husband, right, there's a clinic in Ontario. They're prepared to help us. We're going to pack up. We're going to move to Ontario because we got to do everything we can for him. And she said, oh, you know what? We're actually going to be coming to Calgary in two months time. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> what? Oh. And and so when the clinic opened, we I always joke and I say we were, we're the first through the doors and we haven't left. Uh, and so when my son was six months old, we started therapy with him, but we just went really hard with him, really intensive with him. And obviously that was when he was six months old. He's now two and a half. He is walking. Amazing. He Amazing. Is wow. Talking. And he has, he has far exceeded the expectations that were given to us. When you have at our last neurologist meeting, I uh, I saw the neurologist do a double take. He's like, wait, is this Aiden? Aiden? <laughs> and it's just incredible to think that what was expected for him and how he's far exceeded that is just amazing. And we know that it has been a combination of time on our knees and therapy. Is there... Uh, a, a range of on a scale of when it comes to something like cerebral palsy, like zero is never going to walk, talk, do anything to 10 is, Oh, could live somewhat of a normal life. Yes. So there is a scale that is 
for so that that kids are graded on with cerebral palsy. However, that scale only becomes really valid, I think, once they reach like the age of one to two. So there's really a hard to predict where they would fall on that scale. Hmm. But what we, they do know is that when you look at a kid who's had extensive brain damage, you expect the scale to to, to sort of be on the more severe side. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what we were being primed for, yeah. is, is that I was still trying to be positive about this in the NICU, because here he survived, and I'm just like, well, he survived. Like, you know, like, you know, he survived. So it's going to be okay. And I think they really try to stress that, that he would fall on the more severe side of the spectrum because of the extent of his of his brain trauma. But here's the thing when it comes to cerebral palsy is that if you know one kid with cerebral palsy, you just know one kid with cerebral palsy. It is mm. it manifests itself differently in every in every child. Uh and so my son predominantly he is affected on his right side of his body, so his right arm and his right leg. So he has right hemiplegia. And so one kid with right hemiplegia is different from another kid with right hemiplegia. So you're right in in, in assessing that there is a scale. So you're going through all of this. And I mean, you guys could at any point in time just give up and say this, this is what it is and this is our lives. But then you guys also then decided to or how did how did hope for cerebral palsy then come about mm-hmm. you know we started seeing the, the the positive effects of the therapy you know in my son and when my son turned one you know my husband and I started talking about this and we said wow it's incredible like what they thought he was going to do and 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 how he's progressing and we were in the fortunate position to be able to get my son into therapy every day and that's what we did. There was never a question of if he needed it, whether we were going to get it, we did it for yeah. him. And so I started thinking about other parents in a similar situation and how it wasn't fair that they would have to choose between getting their kids therapy or maybe buying groceries that month. Mm-hmm. And and how we are wasting valuable time in a child's life where we can really maximize their potential. And, and as I said, you know, my husband and I started talking about it and like, we should be doing something about this. This is not something that we should just sit on. And so we started feeling the stirrings of we need to do something. Um, like with any, with any big decision, uh, there's always this back and forth. I'm like, oh gosh, starting a nonprofit. I don't know how to do that. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm a doctor. My husband's an engineer. Like, we don't know anything of this world. And, but it would be like, no, and this is way too much work. Like, I'm already raising my son who has a disability. Like, mm-hmm. no, I'm not going to do this. And then mm. it would come back up again. And I would be like, okay, Lord. Like, what are you, what are you, what are you saying? Like, what do you, what do you want me to do here? And I think my heart has always been that if you lead me and if you provide, I'll do it. I'll be the hands and the feet. You just need to guide me through it because I can't do this on my own. And I think that was always my heart's posture throughout infertility and dealing with my son is that 
I can't do this on my own. Like I need you. Yeah. And, and so the one day it eventually, it was, was it was it was a it was a series of events but my husband and I spoke about it and my husband's like I really think we should be doing this um and I said okay well but how and and you know we don't have the experience we don't have the knowledge with it and the one day I was just reflecting on on our journey and whether this was the right decision and I felt as if in my heart that God was saying to me that my pain wouldn't have purpose if I kept it in private. Hmm. And so my entire journey, and so I was like, so you want me to share all of this? Wow, this is a lot. Like, this is heavy. And and then soon afterwards, it was, well, I can take my pain and turn it into something purposeful and turn my ache into action. And... And that's how hope for cerebral palsy was born, really out of a place of, of pain and turning it into purpose. What is your hope for hope for cerebral palsy? How do you want it to help the community? Mm. So we want to make early intervention, and I say quality early intervention, accessible for every child that has received the diagnosis of cerebral palsy. Because here's the thing, it's not that we don't get therapy, but it's not to the quality and the standard to make a difference in a child who has cerebral palsy. Mm. So in the first five years, um, when a child's brain is developing, that's where the maximum uh, potential and what they call neuroplasticity. So the ability for the brain to shift and change is at its best. And so if we can get kids who have cerebral palsy, which is a motor disability, moving, we're actually able to recruit more neurons and get those pathways developed. And so that really impacts the child's quality of life and helping them reach that full potential. So if we can get kids in that critical stage getting quality therapy, then we've then then we've we've made the difference that that I think we've set out for and in terms of our mission. So then how can we get involved? Well, one would be um, obviously sharing this for people know about our organization, raising that awareness that this is the, 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 the this is the, that there are options out there hmm. and that parents who have received that diagnosis of cerebral palsy can have hope. And the other is getting funding. Um, and getting people to donate and sponsor their intensive therapy sessions. Mm-hmm. So awareness and finances. <laughs> that is it. Uh, amazing. Your story, honestly, ups and downs, ups and downs. Um, but it sounds like God has already done some healing just in your guys' hearts and in your family. As you move forward, what are your hopes for the future? Our hope for the future is um, obviously to see hope for cerebral palsy really make a difference in the lives of kids with cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in me sharing my story and my journey with infertility and loss, that if there's one woman that hears it and realizes that she is not alone, mm-hmm. um 
then that would be amazing. Um, I think the most important thing for people to realize is that we all go through tough, tough situations. Um, and the thing that I've learned through the years is the God of the Valley is the same God on the mountaintops. And that we can trust him immaterial of what we're facing. And I think that the other lesson that I've learned from all of this is instead of seeing my pain as something negative, I start seeing it as something that God is something that God is trusting me with. That wow. He peace me enough with it. That's not the way I want to really look at pain. <laughs> <laughs> but that's powerful. Yeah, because he he trusts that I will still serve him, that mm-hmm. I will still praise him. And that I will still love him yeah. through those valleys. Yeah. From Hallmark moments through those hills and valley moments at hope underscore four underscore cerebral underscore palsy. Hope for cerebralpalsy.com. Alicia, this has been uh, an amazing time. Thank you so very much for sharing your heart and uh, sharing with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, to chatting again soon. Wow. I Yeah. I thought it was going to go one way and then it went another <laughs> and then it swung back around and I'm just like good for her. Yeah. For just staying even if you if you even if she would say that she wasn't for staying strong. That's just such a hard journey and still I mean she talks a little bit about the stigma attached to infertility and yeah. um just all the emotional things to process. Um yeah. I'm so glad Alicia took time to share her story with us. We hope it encouraged you. If you are at all on a similar journey, make sure you reach out to her. And I know they'll have resources accessible for you. There, There is quite the stigma of it. But yet there's so many people that when you oh, go yeah. through it or who have gone through it, that they're like, oh, no, this was my story, too. Yeah. We need to have that community of women who are getting together and then a flip side to it, the husbands who are there to support, because a lot of times it's the women to get it. And then the husband's like, well, how, how can I help? What you're, you're sitting back on the sidelines. Yeah. They lost the child too. Yeah. So grateful for this conversation. Grateful for Lisa for saying that we need to talk to Alicia Rye. Shout out uh, Lisa. Shout out to you for downloading uh, our episodes each and every week for being a part of what we've been doing now for over six years for following us on all the socials because we keep if there's a new social popping up holly we're going to be in a lot of trouble yeah i'm pretty much tapped out but we are on youtube so check it out share please subscribe our goal of course is a thousand we have a long way to go so please tell your friends as well and um of course you can always check us out on all the podcast platforms and at faithstrongtoday.com Oh.